I really enjoyed your chat with Brock on ARC, especially the last little bit of it. I felt like that really is where it solidified for me, is when you guys started talking about ARC as almost just existing in a persistent state of coin join. And so when you're living in ARC and you could just stay in ARC for most of your transactions, it sounded really fascinating. And I, I just loved your questions. Like you really honed in on the things that were on my mind. Well, thanks. What I really didn't get is that for ARC to make sense as a scaling solution, you don't think of one ARC service provider as replacing one Lightning service provider. You think of the on-chain footprint of all the Lightning service providers versus one ARC service provider, because a Lightning service provider can only scale to a certain amount of liquidity and a certain amount of sort of channels, because Lightning is a series of payment channels. So every channel has one person on each end. But with ARC, an infinite number of people can be using ARC with one service provider, and that service provider always makes the same amount of on-chain footprint. So it just scales potentially much more exponentially. If it achieves that scale, there's no reason not to live in ARC forever as long as you can refresh your VTXO every month. Because if a lot of people are using it, then a lot of people are accepting VTXOs. So there's no reason to go back to the main chain. And because you can always withdraw unilaterally to the main chain, you don't have to worry about custody while your Bitcoin are sitting inside of the ARC protocol. Yeah, I was glad you brought up that 30-day thing. Obviously, I could see something like if you have a self-hosted node, you would have an ARC application on there that would maybe just stay persistently connected for you. And then you connect to a mobile device to that app or something. The other thing that you clarified that I was glad to hear is that you can get in and out via on-chain or via Lightning, which sounds really great. And it sounds like the privacy is top-notch, which uh, you specifically asked him about. Like, can I go to the dark market and then use uh, the same you know, addresses over here at an Airbnb? Are they going to tie the two together? Um, are they going to figure out who I am? And I like that very direct approach, and you got a good answer. Right. And we also spoke some trash on Ethereum as a warm-up, so... It was a great day for me. Hey, now that's how you know it's a classic dad pod. Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on June 9th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin dad, and I'm here, as always, with... Hey, it's me. It's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. On today's show, we are going to discuss the SEC complaint against Coinbase. A complaint was also made against Binance, but OMG, it was so obvious. There's nothing really interesting there. Whereas with Coinbase, I think there's kind of an interesting subtlety around their wallet that uh, we've been researching and we can get into. The U.S. Justice Department has claimed that two Russian nationals laundered 647,000 Bitcoin from the Mt. Gox hack. We have a personal connection to Mt. Gox, so we'll just go back in time and talk a little bit about that and the uh, what that means for Bitcoin in the future, in the past, how it's completely different than the DAO and Ethereum's previous hacks. In economics and banking, our favorite BitMEX co-founder, Arthur Hayes, preaches patience in his latest blog post. We'll get into that and how his view of the banking crisis and U.S. debt markets sort of touch on everything. The yearly In Gold We Trust report is out. Out, and the theme is stagflation. We'll do the quick summary of that and uh, point you to that report. Then in Bitcoin Optech, we have a great demonstration of how you can use different opcodes to achieve covenants. And the theme there is that all the developers want covenants on Bitcoin. That kind of ties into my conversation with Barack. And then we have some boosts to go through. And that's our show. Yeah, there is... Several things I'm looking forward to chewing on, but 
the Coinbase one, you say there's some nuances around the wallet that are interesting, and I agree. I also think there's several other points in here that might be of interest to Bitcoiners. So should we start with Coinbase? You told me that you were feeling a little conflicted about the coverage of the Coinbase lawsuit, because on the one hand, Bitcoiners have been saying, hey, you're trading unregistered securities, you're going to get sued or regulated. And on the other hand, when that happens, are we dancing on the grave of Coinbase and basically pulling up the ladder of decentralized cryptocurrency behind us by narrowly defining it so that only Bitcoin qualifies? Or is this just anyone could have seen it coming and you were silly to build your business and your projects in a way that you could be regulated? And I'd add to that, uh, you Bitcoiners are so free markets, are all about free markets. But then when the government comes in and goes after the casinos and goes after the altcoins, you just cheer them on. Where's the free market in that? I've been seeing, you know, a variation of that thrown around too. And I've reflected on this a little bit. I actually did ask myself this question because I was delighted, delighted to see them go after Binance. That's the biggest casino of them all. I think CZ is probably one of the dirty players out there. And then when I saw them go after Coinbase, I was delighted again. I was an OG Coinbase customer. I do appreciate early on what they did for Bitcoin. And for a while, I thought they were going in the right direction. But for the last several years, they've clearly been making decisions to turn Coinbase into a casino. And they've had their foot on the accelerator. In their Coinbase app, they have certain currencies that are highlighted. And if you go through the learning programs, you get awarded some of that currency. And so they kind of spotlight and encourage you to start stacking. Maybe it's a Salooner or something like that. Atomic. There's all these ones that they, they've shilled. And you go through their training and you get a little bit of it. So all of a sudden you're a bag holder. Well, once you're a bag holder, you're hooked, right? And they get people hooked in their little casino to go out there and start wasting their money on these pump and dump VC schemes. I don't know. To me, it seems perfectly rational to be in favor of a fully fair distributed monetary system and also be in favor of the existing securities laws being enforced. You and I have been saying since the beginning of the show that these are securities and that Coinbase is a casino and that staking is probably just the number one sign that one of these things is a security. And once you enable staking, you ultimately have pre-mined bag holders who have tons of the coin who become very powerful in a staking network. And then you have these foundations behind all of these. The Salooner Foundation and the Consensus Foundation. Kardarner has their foundations. I mean, Chuck over there has himself an office in Colorado with a fireplace. I mean, the guy works in an office full of people. All of them are working on Cardooner. Tell me that's not a group of people managing it to try to get it something that's worth more. I mean, give me a break. They're all securities. It's been clear. And so I actually, the more I reflected on it, don't really believe it's a conflict of interest. And I'm not necessarily a Bitcoiner that wants to see the United States government completely crumble for Bitcoin to win. I'd love to see everything get stronger together. It might take a few decades, but I'd love to see everything stronger together. Now, what is so bad about an unregistered securities offering? I think the issue is that any security is the ability for one person or a group of people to create a financial instrument that has money-like properties. And as a result, there are a lot of bad incentives 
to create hype securities and then dump them on retail, take their real money and run, leaving them with worthless pieces of paper. And this pattern has repeated itself throughout history. There's the Mississippi crash that took down the French government in the 17th century, or was it the 18th? And um, there is the South Sea bubble crash that was a financial crisis that started in London, spread throughout Europe. There's the Great Depression, which started off with a massive uh, stock market crash in 1929. And many of those companies that were high flyers in that stock market bubble completely disappeared and had bogus finances. There was very little regulation of securities at that time. So the TLDR is if you go back in time, issue bogus securities, take real money and run. That is the best way to make money, in my opinion. And as a result, issuing securities has become a highly regulated activity because fundamentally there is a recognition that there's a lot of bad incentives in this activity and a lot of incentive for fraud. At the same time, that doesn't mean that regulators are these paragons of virtue who are just looking out for the common person. They also have their own incentives. And with the relationship between Gary Gensler, Binance, and the other players in the cryptocurrency industry, it's clear that the SEC is a bit conflicted and the people involved have odd incentives. I mean, Gary Gensler was apparently soliciting Binance to see if he could get a job as an advisor, and then he's suing them three years later. So is he a scorned former almost employee? Does he have some conflict of interest there? Who knows? But it's clear that no one's perfectly good in this story. At the same time, we recognize that the ability to sort of create monetary assets out of thin air is honey for scammers. And you can see that with Charles Hodgkinson, Chuck, who has his office with a fireplace in Colorado. He created Cardano after being involved with the Ethereum Foundation, and I guess sort of learning the dark art of scamming from the, what is it that, um, oh gosh, that guy says, Ethereum is the mother all of all points. If you look at Charles Hodgkinson, I mean, this guy is, uh, in my view, obviously full of He walks around wearing Gucci-themed clothing. I mean, listen, if you're a grown man and you're wearing designer logo shirts, you know, you look like a tool. And he talks in only techno babble. He's constantly gossiping on Twitter. I mean, if you just observe him for about 10 minutes, you'll conclude that this guy is a total moron. But he markets himself kind of like Craig Wright as this sort of savant genius who created this new cryptocurrency type thing. And it's all this cult of personality and BS around him. And he has his whole team and company to pump and dump the price of Cardano. And finally, in these lawsuits against Binance and Coinbase, it's being called out for an unregistered security. I have no problem with that because I look at Chuck's behavior and I think this guy is really abusing people's trust and people could get hurt here. And I'm not not completely certain that the answer is a completely open market where anyone can say anything and everyone's allowed to scam your grandmother because it's her fault for answering the phone and believing what someone told her that she should buy this token or whatever. Here's my final thought on this, on the SEC regards. We don't have a free market, right? So if we had some sort of utopian liberal free market where the institutions that were in power were there based on merit and product strength and demand in the market, then institutions would have a lot more writing on their brand and they wouldn't associate with 
scam scammers like Sam Bankman fraud and Vitalik. Because in the place of in the theoretical libertarian marketplace, your brands would be too valuable. But that's not we don't live in a marketplace that doesn't have some influence. We have subsidies. We have regulators that build moats. We we do not live in an unaltered market. So this particular world that we have created for ourselves has a place for these regulators. Now, we could argue their functionality, their effectiveness, their legality, but there is a place for them because it's not a completely free market. And we've already made that bed. We're laying in it now. And this is their job. They should have been doing this two years ago. That's my complaint. A lot more people would have been saved money if they would have done this two years ago. And I think the natural process is for the pendulum of regulation to swing to extremes. There's always going to be this battle between different interest groups around Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And so this battle is sort of what we were expecting. And it's kind of, in my view, quote unquote, natural. At the same time, there's a bunch of context that might be useful to think about. One, from talking with Crypto Mom, the crypto lawyer, the view she shared with me is that the SEC and regulators don't really have the resources to go after all of these altcoin scams that the altcoin scam market has behaved very differently than securities markets have in the past 80 years. And as a result, there is a real question about how you can effectively, quote unquote, regulate this from the perspective of the SEC and the CFTC. So that's one thing. Another thing is in the regulatory process, we need to be aware of what precedents are set because you can accidentally set a really bad precedent that can affect a whole lot of different things. We've talked about this in the context of open source. For instance, our view that the actions that the European Union were taking against Tornado Cash risked creating a precedent that open source developers are legally responsible for the way people use their software. If that's the case, goodbye having nice software and a functional internet. You know, that's just going <laughs> to frankly disappear, in my opinion, if that precedent gets set and is then legally enforced. So that could be a real disaster. So that's why, in my view, the Coinbase lawsuit is much more interesting than the Binance lawsuit. By the way, I'm just I'm not saying that regulators are not coming for Bitcoin. Of course they're coming for Bitcoin. It's just that right now going after Bitcoin with the existing regulatory and legal tools is really tricky because Bitcoin is very decentralized and so if you want to attack it, you end up having to attack free speech, the right to do what you want with your computer, the right to run code. It's very legally tricky. So it's much easier to go after obvious financial scams like Cardano, like whatever. So the thing that concerns me most about the SEC lawsuit, and that concerns a little, it's not like I'm, you know, it's not like I think it's an emergency, is Coinbase has been quite clever, I think, in evolving their business with an eye towards defeating regulation with complexity. And I'm, of course, talking about the Coinbase wallet, which I had the misfortune of using this morning to try and figure out what they're doing with it. All in the line of duty for this show. I've been meaning to nuke and pave this laptop. I guess <laughs> this is the last straw. I thought it was just like a sacrificial chromium install or something. <laughs> well, it is in a no, flat The pack. whole machine's got to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, right now. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> There's a little bit of context to this, too, is uh, Dad and I watched an interview with 
Brian, the CEO of Coinbase, Brian Armstrong, and he was on CNBC talking about how, uh, well, I don't know what the SEC is going on about because a lot of this activity they're talking about is taking place in our Coinbase wallet app. And that's DeFi. That doesn't have anything to do with us. And that was kind of like his, they're so crazy. They don't understand how any of this works, which is inferring to that complexity that you're talking about. And the Coinbase wallet is a piece of software that you can download. I think they have a mobile app. I downloaded the Chromium browser extension. And when you click on it, it generates 12 seed words, suggests you make a password. Actually, it requires a password. And then it says, okay, this is all custodied by you. This is all your cryptocurrency. Coinbase has nothing to do with it. Oh, but to use it, you have to agree to our terms of service and privacy policy. And of course, in the privacy policy, they completely surveil you. And in the terms of service, you're not allowed to sue them. So what's going on here? Basically, they've created some developer software development kits, SDKs, that allow different altcoin projects to sort of advertise themselves to the Coinbase wallet. And the Coinbase wallet, some of the code is in an open source GitHub, but the GitHub organization is controlled by Coinbase and you can't see the contributors. You can see that it's a pretty dead project. There's not a lot of activity. So it's typical of kind of corporate run GitHub semi-open source projects. But the thing about the Coinbase wallet is that the real magic is closed source. So it's kind of like a little bit of open source stuff, a little bit of self-custody, but the actual logic, like the real nuts and bolts of it is closed source and completely run by Coinbase. So to me, this looks like using the appearance of open source software to disguise a centralized business run project. Yeah, the app clearly requires backend infrastructure. Their developers are obviously writing the app. And then what they've done is they've created this this way for the dApps out there to show up in a integrated web browser. So Coinbase can just kind of be like, shrug, it's just a browser, bro. Like we don't control that. But of course, in order for that browser to pick up that dApp, the dApp has to be using Coinbase's SDK. It's also completely reasonable to presume that Coinbase could blacklist any dApp out of there they want because they are controlling the rendering engine after all. So it seems like a pretty tenuous argument because they're kind of creating the experience that enables you to then go play in this DeFi casino. And the part that they get to say they don't control is, well, they don't build the dApps. They don't you know, control the projects behind the decentralized apps. They're just giving you the window into the world. And yeah, there's like 16,000 of them in there. So we don't know what they're doing. This concerns me because Coinbase, I think, has figured out that their traditional business model of pumping and dumping illiquid altcoins onto retail is risky. And so they've moved a lot of that pumping and dumping into the Coinbase app. And in the Coinbase app, based on what I've seen, they do have the ability to promote securities because they can kind of order the altcoins that you see in the drop down menu. I think that they have the ability to order that. And from what we've heard in the past, if you want to pump an altcoin, all you do as Coinbase is you put it on the main page right next to Bitcoin and Ether. And so people log in, they don't know anything. They're like, oh, Bitcoin, $20,000. Ethereum, $500. Oh, and here's dog poop coin for two cents. Oh, that sounds like a deal. I'll buy that. Just by putting it in a certain order, you incentivize the behavior. Yes, humans are that stupid. That's you know the takeaway. So it reminds me a lot of their base protocol where they 
were going to use the optimism chain to create this kind of Coinbase layer two that's interoperable with Ethereum. They're sort of leaning into decentralized projects, but with a bit of centralized corporate backend so that they can kind of reap the benefits of the crypto Wild West ecosystem and then try to shield themselves in the precedent set by open source code. We're not responsible, but they're, they do create these sort of nexuses of control in that there is a closed source backend here. And they bring brand to it as well. There, that is something that's worth considering. Coinbase has some some brands, some name recognition. You know, when you hear people talk about, well, it's a U.S. regulated company. So you're kind of going into this U.S. regulated company's app with their name on it. And perhaps that is something you might trust over just, you know, like the unicorn app. I don't think regulators are stupid. I think that they're going to see what you're actually doing, probably. And it's pretty obvious that Coinbase has a business model that needs regulators to approve of the way they're treating these altcoins and trying to hide that by, you know, moving volume into a pseudo open source app is pretty obvious. And so the only concern I have is we don't want open source to get caught up in this lawsuit and to create a weird precedent that now means that Bitcoin wallet developers have to look over their shoulder that the SEC might be coming for them. Right. It's sort of like, go figure, Coinbase kind of is forcing is forcing this issue, right? And then there's, I imagine, there's going to be other concerns with Coinbase's business raised as well, because their platform does have some of these securities directly on it in the traditional application as well. So it's not just this wallet, it's their traditional platform. And they have a staking program as well, which the SEC seems to be particularly interested in, at least in Binance's case. You have to imagine that Coinbase has been planning for this for a long time. And in this suit, the SEC alleges that Coinbase never tried to register as a securities broker. Coinbase might have documentation that shows that they have. And it's not necessarily at this point in time clear to me that the SEC is going to win this thing at all. Uh, They may not actually succeed depending on how prepared Coinbase is for this. I suspect they're very prepared. At the end of the day, this must live and die, although I'm no freaking lawyer, but this must live and die on proving that these things are securities in order to claim that they are trading securities. I think they need to prove that at least one token is a security. And frankly, I don't think it'll be hard to prove that Cardano, sorry, I'm going after you today, Chuck, is a security. So I imagine that can be legislated. But the thing is, this is going to take years. Coinbase is definitely going to fight this all the way to the Supreme Court. And the SEC just doesn't necessarily have the resources to fight multiple lawsuits like this. Let's not forget, the SEC is currently in a long drawn out court case with Ripple, the creator of the XRP altcoin, which is a real piece of crap pump and dump token. And Ripple has just been pumping and dumping this token on retail. That was their entire business model for years. And somehow the SEC is struggling in this case against them. So what Coinbase is doing is much more sophisticated, in my opinion. And I think they're going to have trouble legislating this in front of a judge because the SEC has also not been very forthcoming and easy to work with when Coinbase has approached them to try and create a regulatory moat around their business. If 
the SEC had just said, no, we're not going to approve you as a securities exchange and prime broker, then yes, Coinbase would have sued them, but that would have kind of set a cleaner legal precedent for the SEC to defend themselves. They've sort of talked out of both sides of their mouth. I don't think that it was in good faith. Does it have to be in good faith? I don't know. I think it makes the legal outcome more uncertain. I have to imagine it does create a bit of a chilling effect on this particular type of crypto business combined with Chokepoint 2.0 and just the demise of some of these crypto-friendly banks. It seems to me we are sliding into a period of time that is going to be very challenging for the quote-unquote crypto industry. But this was always inevitable. The financial backdrop that's creating the drop in liquidity, we knew this was coming. But also, money is a really big idea. It's maybe one of our biggest ideas. And to go directly at one of our biggest ideas with institutions that are at the core of our societies that are literally the definition of institutions... This was always going to be a big fight and a big, big change. And that's why the durability against this process has to be built in. If you have a bus factor with your project, you're not going to survive. And if you're not properly decentralized and truly, truly decentralized, not this BS decentralization, you're not going to survive because you're going at one of the biggest ideas ever. So it has to be an inevitable force of nature and not somebody's brainchild that has a passion behind it because that passion can be squashed. Bitcoin was built for this very scenario. Uh, These others, they're not. Now, Chris, I'm sorry to bring up Mt. Gox again. I feel like we bully you with this news because Mt. Gox has been dragging on years after a year, and I know you want to leave it behind, but it just won't die. It won't, will it? (laughs) It's just a story that doesn't die. And maybe I missed a beat. Maybe I should have become the Mt. Gox guy. You know, as a victim of Mt. Gox, I've been following the story from the very beginning. And that'd be my whole brand, right? Is like the Mt. Gox guy with a mountain theme. And I've just been following the story for 10 years now because who would have thought? The issue is you weren't into Magic the Gathering. You were a Trekkie, not a Magic the Gathering. (laughs) You're right. That's a classic callback. So that's where the name, you know, so the original founder, like Jed was his name back Jed in like, McCaleb, 2007. Jed arch yeah. scammer. This guy's amazing. Yeah. He was a big Magic the Gathering guy. And that's what Mount Gox started for. It was like trading Magic the Gathering cards. And I never was into Magic. You're right. I was more of a sci-fi guy. I tried Magic. It just, I didn't find it particularly interesting. I really got into Warhammer, if you know what that is. Oh yeah, I never, it never drawn me in, but it did seem like it would be more my speed. Well, because I really liked painting those little miniatures. It's really fun, actually. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had a buddy that was, he was great at it too. Well, there are a couple of techniques. You know, you do a base coat, then you add like a wash to create shadows, and then you dry brush to highlight the edges. (laughs) Yeah. Man, you, you probably build a good Star Trek ship model. (laughs) <laughs> we collaborate on that i tell you what oh that's yeah that's where i always i don't take it across the finish line with the fi- with the final touches okay well my wife and i actually bought a model of the uss missouri we were going to do that together but then we had a baby so it's still sitting in plastic well things like that happened in 2014 a life-changing event happened mount gox announced it had lost 850,000 bitcoin 850,000 which at the time which seemed like a lot of money, was worth $450 million. It was attributed to a hack, and Mt. Gox had to file for bankruptcy. Oh my God, it just created this whole series of lawsuits. Uh, the CEO went to jail for a period of time in Japan, then released on bail. Um, and, and now he's still he's, around. Still yeah, now he, he's like the CTO of Libra Chat or something. Yeah. Or, yeah. And now there's a new twist this week. 
So BTCE was a Russian-operated crypto exchange. The U.S. Justice Department is alleging that one of the operators of BTCE conspired with, I guess, a hacker named Alexander Werner to launder 647,000 of the Bitcoins hacked from Mt. Gox through BTCE. Essentially, I guess they were liquidating hacked Bitcoins via that pretty shady exchange. And I guess BTCE was shut down in 2017, I think, based on this account. I'm trying to remember if I ever used BTCE. The name is really ringing a bell. It's hard to keep track because there was BTCC, which was the China exchange. Remember, there was those those two brothers. I think one of them, Charlie Lee, he does the ballet crypto. He, you know, he has uh-huh. a sort of crypto wallet card type product. And that was, you know, that was a beautiful exchange, of course. Shut down, of course, in the China crackdown. If you figure, so if they laundered almost 650,000, that is a huge chunk of the amount of Gox because it was 850,000 that was that was hacked. So 650 of that is nearly all of it. Sounds like all of it except for somebody's cut. And there were multiple hacks. So I think that there were potentially other, um, uh, you know, other parties that had different uh, chunks of the stolen Bitcoin. And then because Mt. Gox was originally a magic card trading exchange, their technology really sucked. And the way that they confirmed withdrawals, I believe, was using a transaction ID, which is not a stable identifier. And so I think it was possible to scam Mt. Gox by requesting multiple withdrawals and then doing something to your address, your transaction to make their systems think that you hadn't received the Bitcoin so you could withdraw multiple times. I know that that's also been an issue with recovering coins from that exchange. So the reason we're just bringing this up is that I think the Mt. Gox hack and the huge number of coins stolen really demonstrates how decentralized and anti-fragile Bitcoin is. Because when Ethereum experienced the DAO hack, where this Ethereum smart contract had a very large number of Ethereum in it and then was hacked and the majority of it was stolen, I think allegedly by a guy working out of Singapore on an Ethereum project. That's uh, the theme of Laura Shin's book, I think, The Cryptopians. Ethereum was sufficiently centralized for Vitalik and other controllers of the project to roll back the chain state and basically erase the hack. And this created a chain split. So we have ETH Classic and Ethereum. ETH Classic is the chain where the hack still exists. And I mean, I think it's kind of a dead chain now, but for a while there was sort of competition, which is the true Ethereum. But for Bitcoin, all of the hacks have been kept in the history. There's been no way to roll it back. And after the Mt. Gox hack, there was a thought that this is it for Bitcoin. But in the end, it was just this blip and Bitcoin has continued stronger than ever. And I just don't think that that would necessarily be the case with a proof of stake chain. Because, you know, if you hacked a huge number of proof of stake tokens, maybe you'd want to liquidate them just because they're relatively traceable on a public blockchain. But it would also give you a large amount of control over the protocol. Or you could start many validators with those hacked coins. And actually, you might have to, because depending on the way proof of stake works, if you don't start validators to prevent proposals to change the chain state and kind of fork out your hack, that might actually happen. So there's a lot of weird incentives in that model. And I just like to use examples like this as moments to tout how freaking awesome Bitcoin is and how the next best thing seems to be Ethereum. And it just seems like a total joke by comparison, in my view. I suppose with that in mind, 
I can understand why people just dismiss Bitcoin as, ah, uh, it's just cryptocurrency. It's all just cryptocurrency. Because if you have a market of like 20,000 tokens, they all look the same to somebody from the outside, right? It's hard to understand how just only one could be different. It's, it's, I think it's hard for even people that are just remotely familiar with the market to wrap their head around. Also, I notice in this case against these uh, Russians, these Russians that have this Bitcoin, it seems they didn't use very good privacy practices. They mostly just used standard on-chain transactions with wallet addresses that were tied to identities at other exchanges. So they just sort of KYC'd themselves right into the FBI's um, case, I guess, because they, I mean, they were identified on these exchanges and they, they moved it to these exchanges where they had their ID. I mean, it just seems like they didn't even bother trying to hide it. Maybe I missed something, but it seems like really poor privacy practices on uh, the two Russians. Bitcoin privacy is a relatively new idea. Yep, that's true. We didn't really think about it back then at all. The blockchain history is forever. Which is right. And, and Bitcoin was flaw, so obscure that just using Bitcoin was private. And then that history remains and more attention comes to the chain and suddenly all of these connections are unearthed. So, yeah, take care of your privacy, people. Well, Bitcoin itself is a lesson in long term thinking. Bitcoin teaches us to think longer out because it's going to be it's going to be a little while. Right. And so and like you just touched on the blockchain, it keeps things forever. So you start thinking a little bit more once you learn that about what that means. But I think as a society, at least here in the U.S., I can't speak really outside of that. We have become very short term thinking, very, very, very short term thinkers. And I mean, some people think about retirement and stuff like that, but doesn't make you think about stuff the way Bitcoin does. But Arthur has been thinking about Bitcoin and global macro. We always love to get into his blog posts because they're kind of in-depth and very entertaining. And this latest blog post is about patience. And I think that patience is a perspective that's quite rare in financial analysis and even in central bank policy these days. There's a sense that when we had a banking crisis in the U.S., which I believe is still continuing, and Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and then First Republic collapsed, Signature Bank was collapsed. I don't think it collapsed on its own. But I think that for a brief moment, policymakers and the Federal Reserve were briefly panicked. And then when more banks didn't collapse, they assumed the crisis was over. Super short-term thinking. And now they're talking about inflation again. So the incentive for short-term thinking is there everywhere. And I think we argue that it is incentivized by our short-term financial system. What Arthur is saying is we need to have a little patience because it takes time for the fiat liquidity situation to resolve itself. He's a trader. He wants to trade assets to make money. And so his model of Bitcoin price is fiat liquidity plus whatever the value of the Bitcoin technology is. And he has a lot of great references in here. One of the things he says, which I love, is that the three-body problem is not solved for physics or for money. This is a great metaphor. The three-body problem is this issue in physics where if you have two objects, like two balls or two planets, and you drop them together in space, they start to orbit each other. It's very predictable. You can uh, predict where each object will be thousands of years into the future. But the moment you have three objects, if you put a third object in there, suddenly it's chaos. It's very hard to predict where these objects are going to be even a small period of time in the future. And of course, this is also a reference 
reference to the great Chinese sci-fi book by Liu Cixing, The Three-Body Problem, which I recommend everyone check out. Super weird and fun. Now, if in physics, we can't even predict the state of a system with three variables, how on earth are central bankers predicting the state of the global economy, which is a system with millions or billions of variables? And if you take that perspective, it's clear that they can't predict the state of that system. It's an impossible task. Jesus, guys, just stop. You know, stop trying to control this thing. But that's not what's going to happen. The central banking community has this incredible groupthink and hubris that they can somehow guide a global economic system with billions of participants and huge amounts of sort of irrational randomness because humans are very emotional and are not very predictable in their behavior. And there's natural disasters that can affect the market that are totally outside their control, right? You can have smoke that comes in that kills crops and shuts down solar production. We're seeing that in New York right now as we record. I don't know if you saw this, Dad, but uh, solar production on the East Coast is down almost 57%, something like that. It's a massive reduction in solar and crop yields are going to be lower. How do you predict that? How do you plan for that? Or this dam that just went out in the Ukraine, that's going to decimate wheat crops. How do you how do you manage a market for that when it didn't exist two weeks ago? That's a great question. And I don't think that there's an answer. The truth is there's a huge amount of variability and randomness in our world. And the only way to manage that risk is through redundant systems, insurance, investments in infrastructure that allow you to quickly ramp production of energy, of food, of things up and down. And that's all very expensive. And that's all very long-term thinking oriented. And so we don't have that, obviously. Arthur makes the point that as the ratio of debt to GDP increases, and he likes to call GDP productive output, real productive economic activity. Well, what exactly is that? Who knows? But you know it when you see it. You know, a factory is building cool machines that do something useful, industrial robots or, you know, big trucks or planes. That's got to be real productive output, right? Whereas you look at some financial company and they're making this structured financial product thingamabobby and there are 800 people in their office and you're just scratching your head thinking, what exactly do you do? That's probably not productive. You know, just a guess. I don't know. It's a subjective view, obviously. But his point is that as the ratio of debt to sort of real economic activity increases, and it definitely is increasing drastically, by the way, this sort of creates a phase transition in our economy. And suddenly, real, useful, productive output, it becomes less important in determining where our economy is going than all of this weird debt and financial shenanigans. And this ratio of debt to GDP is only going to get worse And of course, this article focuses on the US, but this basically applies to every developed country. Politically, the world is run by old people. And as a result, these old people who are retiring, they want to be taken care of. And they have the political clout to require that governments do that. And at least in the US, what are the big outlays? It's Social Security, which is a, you know, basically a retirement program, Medicare and Medicaid. These are health insurance and sort of health insurance for retirees programs, interest rates on US government debt. And then the fourth category is US military spending. Well, the thing is, none of these four main outlays, which I believe consume something like 70% of the US budget, can be reduced politically. You try to cut retirement benefits or healthcare or military as a politician, you're done. Just emotionally, Americans will not accept 
any of that. And as a result, the US cannot solve its fiscal deficit problem. It's just going to continue. And it's likely to get worse because if the central bank is serious about controlling inflation, then that third category of US government outlays, interest expense on US debt, is just going to increase indefinitely. There's another problem that the US is dealing with. That is to finance these budget deficits, the US needs to issue more US government debt. But the problem is, since 2016, the foreign sector has turned into a net seller of US government debt, and that has accelerated ever since the US weaponized the dollar against the Russian central bank. Yes, invading countries on your border is wrong for no reason, committing war crimes very bad. At the same time, when you demonstrate to every participant in the world that you control the monetary system, and that if the US doesn't like how someone's behaving, their financial assets are going to get destroyed or seized, that creates an incentive to not hold assets that the US can destroy or seize. Because even if you're in good relationship with the US and you want to have a friendly conversation, you know, maybe the US comes home drunk one night and, you know, says in a threatening tone, well, I see you got a lot of treasuries there. Do you really want to have that conversation? No one wants to be in a relationship like that. And as a result, the rest of the world is not absorbing all of the debt that the US is producing. So the question is, where is that debt going? Well, it's going into the Federal Reserve, but also it's being held by US corporates, banks, and citizens. But what's fascinating is the government is unable to issue significant debt at longer maturities. During COVID, when interest rates went to effectively zero, the smart thing to do would have been to basically take all of the US short-term debt, convert it into 10, 15, 30-year debt, and then issue that debt at 0% interest. But the thing is, the market didn't want that. If the Treasury had tried to issue debt in that quantity at those rates at that duration, they would have had failed Treasury auctions. And so they ended up having to issue the majority of outstanding debt, reissue it at short durations. Because right now, banks and corporations, everybody wants that short duration debt. Essentially, financial markets understand that long term, this system is very problematic. So they'll pile into the short term, but they won't take the duration risk of longer term US debt. And this creates a lot of really weird financial behavior. Again, returning to this idea of a phase change in the economy. Suddenly, productive economic activity has sort of lessened of, of an effect on the economy. And what's really affecting GDP and CPI, these sort of esoteric metrics of economic performance, is what people are doing in this realm of debt and investment. And what's happening is that individuals and corporates are piling into money market funds, and money market funds are majority invested in short-term U.S. government debt. And the U.S. has to issue more debt into this short term. Well, if you think about this, this is very weird because if the majority of U.S. government debt is being held in the short term and the Federal Reserve is trying to tame inflation by raising interest rates, that means that everyone holding short-term debt is going to receive a higher interest rate on that debt. So perversely, as the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, they're actually generating more money flowing into the economy via the interest rate coupons on short-term government debt. It's an odd self-referential system that means that the U.S. Federal Reserve really cannot control the amount of financial system liquidity by managing short-term government interest rates anymore. 
So it seems like the one kind of lever they did have besides just their, you know, job owning would was the you're saying that lever is broken now. It doesn't it's not making the difference They're They've lost that tool, which is like they're really their only tool. So you're telling me I don't know if I buy it, though. Right. Because if they were to say drop the interest rate, the market would explode. It's weird because I've made the argument that the interest rates that the Federal Reserve wants everyone to focus on don't really matter. So I think that a lot of the behavior in financial markets is like the investor response is based on what people believe the drivers of these sort of fundamental markets are. And I've made the argument that the conventional wisdom is wrong. These markets don't work the way people think they do. I think that actually what really determines prices, even in a highly controlled market like US government debt markets, is what the majority of participants are doing. I think that the Fed, if they went against what the majority of market participants are doing, they would end up having to buy all the debt in that market. And then the fiat Ponzi would be laid bare because if the only buyer of treasuries is the government that issued the treasuries, we know it's useless. We know it's (laughs) crap. So I think they're actually quite constrained. They're walking this fine line. And it almost seems like maybe the the tightrope has snapped and they're standing in the air about to fall. Making these short-term calls is risky, but my sense is that this is a real issue. This has not happened before, where as the Fed raises short-term interest rates, this actually increases dollar flows into the private sector. I don't think that's happened before. So this is a very new thing, and we'll find out if it's important. We just need patience, but it's definitely something to watch. Patience seems to be, once again, key. I, I hate it. I feel like patience is cliche at this point. But then earlier this week, I was just kind of looking at the history of the monetization of gold. And it really took forever for people to really come to agree with how much this little rock was worth. There was periods of time where people thought it was worth nothing, periods of time where people thought it was only worth something for jewelry. And then inevitably, people decided it was worth something to trade. But it took from like 300 BC to the Renaissance for that really to set in. And if you were somebody who was a gold bug at the time, you know, that was way, 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 way beyond your lifetime. And uh, now with Bitcoin, I mean, (laughs) there's an episode of TechSnap where I just nonchalantly mentioned how I had just mined 50 Bitcoin that week, you know, just because as I'm experimenting with stuff and, you know, who cared, right? Because it was like 25 cents. So (laughs) what's the big deal? And so, you know, now to see it at somewhere, you know, just below 30,000, Patience is all a matter of perspective. And I'm grateful that Bitcoin is alive in the digital age because it's monetizing much, much faster than gold did. And I think that speaks to the real winning move is not to speculate on financial assets, try to guess the next money of the world. The real winning move is to have awesome skills and go out, have a great time engaging in commerce and business and your professional life and try and do your best. You know, that's the winning move. It's not speculating on all this other stuff. If you can do that and then also successfully speculate, you know, you're a real winner. But obviously, this financial speculative world is not the thing to focus your life on. I would be a mess if Bitcoin went to a million dollars this year. I'd be a mess. I wouldn't know what to do with that kind of money. I I, I still have plenty of self-investing to do. Well, you know, we talk about that a lot. That's actually the theory of the first work of modern sociology, Anomi, the, the work by Emile Durkheim. And it actually examines how lottery winners 
have a very elevated suicide rate. Oh, sorry, the book is called Suicide, but the phenomenon described is enemy. And it's like, basically, if your life changes suddenly, good or bad, people freak out and don't know what to do with themselves. And many don't survive. So you're saying I should probably switch to gold just so that way I, doesn't, I don't go crazy. Because, you know, if I switch to gold, I'll probably get roughly back. <laughs> exactly. That's the genius of gold. <laughs> roughly the same. And the In Gold We Trust report is out. It's a fun read. It talks a lot about the Russian bear, the wolf of stagflation. It's very readable. But, uh, you know, what is the TLDR? There's an interesting analysis of what Russia actually provides to the world economy. And the answer is it's a, it produces about uh, half of the world's palladium and a significant but marginal amount of other precious metals and commodities. And that the lack of these commodities in Western markets is causing, you know, a thinning of uh, these trades and a, you know, potential breakout for these commodities in the future. It also highlights how the freezing of Russian foreign exchange reserves is this incredibly momentous shift in global monetary policy. And it has essentially stimulated the accrual of gold on national balance sheets in national central banks. Ronnie, the creator of this report, uh, believes that there is now a price floor on gold created mainly by these actions taken against the Russian central bank. I mean, obviously he's bullish on gold. He writes a report about it every year. I think the most interesting part is how Ronnie argues that we're moving towards another period of stagflation. Stagflation describes this period of the 1970s when inflation was high and growth was low. And, you know, this has been attributed to many things, oil price shocks uh, due to the OPEC embargo of the United States. There is an argument that stagflation was also basically the result of the overvaluation of U.S. blue chip stocks in the 1960s. And so a period of kind of low growth, high inflation resulted in, in resetting asset prices. The argument that Ronnie makes is that if you look at the 1970 to 1983 period, you see a lot of the same patterns. There is a trigger to this event. So instead of the oil embargo or of 1973 or the Iranian revolution in 1979, which were these external shocks that sort of prolong this period of stagflation, we have the COVID-19 pandemic and lockdowns and the war in Ukraine. The thing to draw from the 70s is that it was actually hard to observe this stagflation when you were in it because there were multiple phases between 1970 and 1983. We likely have seen the first stage of inflation, which seems to be bottoming out this summer, but inflation seems to come in these bursts. And so just when you think it's over, you get another burst. Well, why would we get another burst of inflation? Well, budget deficits are increasing. The debt held at the state level is at its highest in history, averaging 123% in developed economies, which by the way, is mathematically impossible to pay off. Once you get to 123%, it means you're going to have some kind of default, which again speaks to the stagflation model. We have a very low amount of labor force participation in the developed world that also speaks to you know potential inflation. And the other issue is energy. Even though with the current recession, which I guess has not been officially declared yet, but I believe we're in, oil prices have been relatively flat to falling. There is a global constraint 
on energy prices. And the moment global demand brushes up against that hard constraint of energy, prices will explode. So it seems to me that this is a pretty on-the-spot analysis. I definitely suggest you check it out. We've linked to the summary of the report. So if you want to review all those details uh, quickly, you can look at page nine. And uh, but there's also a extended version of the report, which I think is 200 pages. So if you like long reads, I think it's a good one. The point about oil is is one that sits with me a lot. So the price of oil has been dancing around because OPEC has been cutting production while demand is also coming down. So they're trying to keep prices up as best they can, but they're doing that by intentionally cutting production. But if any of the Western economies start to boom, especially if a couple of them in China or if any of them start to come back around, that is immediately going to be a wall. The price of oil will skyrocket. When you bring up the price of energy, it brings up the cost of absolutely everything else. That's one of my major concerns that's going to, I think, throttle any kind of recovery in the economy for a while. Something else that gets brought up in this report that I just haven't really seen mentioned is maybe it's because I've been US focused or more focused on Bitcoin. The global stock market, according to this report, has lost almost $10 trillion in value. $10 trillion. That's wild. Um, that's a massive reduction. And uh, you know, people people look at how much the crypto market has come down. But that just shows you everything really is in decline. Right. Well, this is a wide-ranging view that Ronnie has. And one interesting thing to remember, we've talked about this a lot, but I think, you know, we've sort of moved on, is that changes in the macro backdrop radically affect the returns of your portfolio. And so most safe portfolios that people go to their financial manager and they kind of buy a index of stocks, bonds, and whatever, those were designed for the last 40 years when inflation was constantly falling and interest rates were constantly falling. We're definitely in a new period where inflation is going to behave differently. It's going to go up and down, up and down. And interest rates also seem to be shooting up, then maybe falling. They might be cut soon, but then they might rise again. Who knows? And so Essentially, lots of people need to rethink their portfolio allocation. And that means a lot of people are going to take huge losses that they weren't expecting, also institutions, obviously. And those funds are going to flow into new places, creating opportunities and risks. So all of these macro backdrops, these social and political backdrops, they flow into financial markets and they change the way things work. And I think a lot of common knowledge is going to have to be thrown out the window about how you build a safe long-term portfolio. And I think the TLDR is things like gold and Bitcoin are probably going to be needed in the portfolios of the future to sort of balance out the volatility in energy, in inflation, in politics, etc. Right. And as fiat currencies become less and less trusted, people will have to look at something that they know has genuine value. Energy is obviously one of those things, but it's pretty difficult to do your trade in barrels of oil. But something that is an abstraction of energy, something that requires valuable energy to create, but is provably scarce and digitally transmittable, it might start getting reevaluated. I've often wondered what is going to be the culture shift that changes people's mind from Bitcoin is the riskiest asset in the world to Bitcoin is the safest asset in the world, because that's the reality. And I've wondered, is this pain we may be about to go through, right? It's got to be more arbitrary seizures of assets by governments. When people observe that Bitcoin is a thing that can't be seized, then I think it'll click. Well, and I think maybe getting rugged on things they were told were a sure 
secure bet or a safe bet or the best bet or guaranteed returns and they get rugged on it as as we face this new reality, they may start looking at something else too. Like I just think it's this what we're about to go through and what we're going through right now is going to possibly just over time start changing people's mind and reframing what is a safe bet and what isn't. I was wondering if you would notice the plan B reference in this paper because Ronnie points out that the stock to flow model has been explaining the price of Bitcoin quite well until recently. And now Bitcoin is way under the predictions of that model. And of course, the stock to flow model was created by someone who stole your plan B trademark. Those are fighting words. Um, yeah, you know, because I did, I started plan B as a podcast long, long time ago now, what, eight years? Some of the PNGs and stuff are out there. And so I've seen other folks too that have picked them up and put them on a shirt and sell them. You know, I didn't trademark it. I wasn't very clever about that. And when you make a podcast and you put it up on YouTube and you put it up in RSS feeds, the artwork inevitably is just sort of out there. But the creator of the stock to flow model actually calls himself Plan B. So he's really sort of assumed your shows. Yeah, but unfortunately, stock to flow turned out to be a bust. And so <laughs> I wish it wasn't associated with the Plan B name in that regard. Right. <laughs> and for those who aren't familiar, stock to flow is this very simple model, which has fooled a lot of people that suggests that the price of an asset is determined by the number of units and divided by the flow of new units into the asset. So if you can think about it like gold, there's a bunch of gold out there and only a little bit of new gold is produced every year. Therefore, the stock to flow is X and that kind of explains the price of gold. And Bitcoin, because the emission rate of Bitcoin is falling over time, it means that the price has to adjust up in an almost exponential fashion. Well, the problem with that model is that the issue is demand. Demand determines price. It's the intersection of demand and supply of an asset that determines its price. So the model doesn't take into account demand. It just assumes that demand is constant, which is pretty dumb. There's actually like a, a more uh, technical debunking of the model. Uh, essentially, one issue is the model... I, I believe it actually uses price in both the flow and the stock. So price is in both the nominator and denominator of the model when it's regressed. And so essentially what happens is the model regresses itself on price. It's a really trivial mistake, super obvious, but you know, if you don't actually like think about it from sort of a you know physics or not physics, a, like statistical standpoint, it's easy to miss. And so a lot of people, including Ronnie, have been fooled by the stock to flow model. Yeah, I can kind of understand Ronnie because he's not a Bitcoiner. You know, he's a gold bug. So he probably is just tangentially aware of these things. And hey, look at these Bitcoiners. They got it wrong. The thing is, is I have some sympathy because herd consensus is a hard thing to avoid in a bull market that's been sustaining for a while. You start to try to come up with models and reasons that, you know, can give comfort. The reality was <laughs> the, the model also didn't take into account the fact that the Fed was stimulating the market and inflating asset prices. It's sort of like that whole narrative completely falls apart when the reality of the situation actually becomes apparent. But during the hype of the bull run, I don't know, it's, it's really easy to get swayed by that kind of stuff. I never got sucked into it, but I have sympathy for those that did. And I would not use that as a benchmark of anything. And it's unfortunately still does get displayed and traction in some places. And probably during a bull run again, it'll get, it'll get more traction. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's bullish fuel, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. People love charts that go up. And you know what else people love? Linux Unplugged. Hey, yeah, check out Linux Unplugged this week. We had a really fun episode. We tried this tool that allows us to live convert from one distribution to another on a production system and then also slice up your disk and do all this cool stuff with just some really straightforward, simple scripts. And we uh, decided why not do it live in the show? And we gave it a go. You can find that at jupiterbroadcasting.com along with a bunch of other great podcasts. And here's another plug. Your Bitcoin dad might be looking for a new job soon because he's going to try out that tool on a system at work. And if anyone notices, he's definitely getting the axe. So <laughs> thanks a lot, Linux Unplugged. <laughs> In this week's Bitcoin education, we have Bitcoin Optech Newsletter 254. It basically summarizes a mailing list discussion about using MAT to manage join pools. Join pools are hot right now because this is the model that Arc is using on chain, and it's essentially reliant on some form of covenant being incorporated into Bitcoin opt-codes. There are a couple different covenant proposals. I think the most famous is OpCTV, Check Template Verify, which is Jeremy Rubin's proposal. There's another one, which I think maybe Rusty Russell proposed that might be a little bit more flexible. And it turns out that the MAT proposal, Merkleize All the Things, can replicate the OpCTV functionality using an opcode called OpCOCV, OpCheck Output Contract Verify opcode. This might sound pretty esoteric and complicated, but what's the TLDR? The TLDR is that Bitcoin developers really want covenants on Bitcoin. So I think that that's maybe a conversation we should have because we've talked about covenants when the OpCTV controversy came out. And now we're talking about them again with the ARC proposal. So I can't remember, Chris, were you on the pro or against covenant side of the debate? Well, my initial reaction was this is bad, right? Because you could have it used to restrict Bitcoin. You could have it used to kind of group or homogenize, perhaps. But after listening to your conversation with Barack, but also just kind of trying to think about how to solve this problem as time has gone on, I guess I'm feeling better about it. My, see, my understanding was, and the, my, I, I'll tell you where my concern was. I worried about something like everything you bought from Coinbase would be in a covenant. Then the U.S. regulators could come to Coinbase and say, we need you to turn off these addresses or we need you to confiscate or whatever, you know, what we need to identify. Like it would just give like the ability to disable people's ability to spend that potentially. And I, uh, that to me seemed like almost inevitability. Like if we, if we build this in a shop like Coinbase may try to use a tool like that to kind of have control over Bitcoin, which would then be, of course, preyed upon by regulators. But it also seems great for, I mean, okay. Anyways, I wonder if you wanted to respond to that because that was my initial concern. Right. And I think that Barack would respond by saying, listen, they can already do that because they hold the Bitcoin. So Coinbase owns the Bitcoin you think you own if you keep them with Coinbase. And they can either choose to not give it to you or they can say, listen, we'll send it to a multi-sig where we'll hold a key and the government will hold a key and you can hold a key. So they could create multi-sigs. I think Barack's view is that the multi-sig approach might be more direct control and more easy to implement than a covenant potentially. So listening to his explanation, I think I'm more in Barack's camp now that even recursive covenants would be fine. A recursive covenant means sending Bitcoin to an address 
type and the Bitcoin afterwards can only ever be sent back into that kind of address. So it means that whatever restrictions you place on that Bitcoin will be forever. Well, why doesn't that scare me? Well, one, it's optional. You can choose to send your Bitcoin into the covenant or you can choose to not send your Bitcoin into the covenant. And if you don't have a choice because Coinbase owns that Bitcoin now, well, I'm sorry, that's on you your fault for holding Bitcoin with Coinbase and not being in control of it. Coinbase can do whatever they want. I mean, Coinbase can destroy Bitcoin if they want. They can send it to a burn address or they can send it to the U.S. Marshall's wallet. Right, right. But I I feel like when we get to the end of whatever regulatory process we're going to be going through, Bitcoin in the U.S., is especially for large investments, is going to be through major institutions that already have deep relationships with the SEC, the Treasury Department, you know, the FBI. I'm not being paranoid here. This is just the reality. Like if Bitcoin continues to become something that is worth a lot of value, it's going to, the NASDAQ's going to be involved, right? Like JP Morgan's going to be involved. That's where a lot of people that are going to invest like their family wealth or some sort of big investment plan are going to be getting their Bitcoin from. And all of that, in my opinion, not only is it KYC, which we think is bad now, but it could be in a covenant that says that basically looks at a list, a, a list of things that you can't spend it on as said by the treasury department or whatever. And you know, you, when you get Bitcoin through the NASDAQ exchange, or when you get Bitcoin in your retirement ETF or whatever ends up happening, it's all going to have these restrictions on where you can spend it. And it's going to be people that have like Bitcoin from RoboSats are going to be the weirdos. We're going to be the vast, 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 vast niche minority. That was already inevitable. Think about early Bitcoin adopters. Those first Bitcoin meetups, they were hackers and trans women. They're a minority of Bitcoiners today. And we are going to be a minority of Bitcoiners in the future. The way adoption works is that the next wave of adopters are going to be bigger than the previous waves by some factor. So I would reply that all of that custodial Bitcoin held by Fidelity, by Coinbase, by Prime Trust, whatever, that Bitcoin was already regulated. It's not really going to go back into free markets in any kind of scale. Maybe technically some of it could be, but I think if you tried to say empty the micro strategy Bitcoin trust and then you know have it freely circulate again, maybe we would discover that regulators would have a problem with that. So I think that while it's true, there is the potential to create recursive covenants that would sort of further break Bitcoin fungibility and make like new restricted types of Bitcoin. From what I can see with Barack's proposal, the ability of covenants to create interesting new scaling structures that also provide privacy, I think that probably outweighs the risk of malicious use cases because the malicious use cases of covenants aren't really necessary. That Bitcoin is already controlled by regulated actors and they can be forced to do bad things with that Bitcoin. I agree, except for nothing right now prevents me from taking Bitcoin from Coinbase or Prime Trust and sending it into a coin join. There's no restrictions on where I can go. It's tracked, but there's no restrictions on it. And if I want to do a jam market, I totally can right now. I don't know if that's going to be if with restrictions in the use of my Bitcoin, maybe when I take Bitcoin off of Prime Trust or Coinbase as if they're going to be around, maybe some of at least the most established 
standard CoinJoin markets and coordinators are blocked or something. Like, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen, but it seems if it's technically capable of doing it, they would eventually. My two cents is that the regulatory attack on Bitcoin is going to be much stupider because while I think that regulators have some competence, at the end of the day, our government is run by very old people who can barely use cell phones. So I think that they're going to go for a more traditional attack that they can understand better rather than using some advanced cryptographic smart contract technique to sort of restrict Bitcoin in a very smart way. I just sort of feel like that's the Coinbase idea too. It's like, well, if we make it obscure enough, they'll just go for the low hanging fruit and they'll leave this other DeFi stuff alone. And it's like, I don't know if it becomes a big enough threat where they really properly care and the ability is there, then with a stroke of a pen, they could dictate how a lot of Bitcoin gets spent. They already can. Yeah, I, I suppose. I suppose because it's KYC. But at least, again, like I said, you could coin join it or something. I mean, you're right in that really that the master ninja move was years ago, locking down the on-ramps and off-ramps and KYC and everything. That was really the ninja move. Right. If you could KYC everything and prevent the use of privacy technologies, then you'd basically have a list of users and you could eventually maybe do something with that. But I think the horse is sort of out of the barn now because sure, regulators can force Coinbase to disable withdrawals and send all of the Bitcoin into the government wallet. And oh yeah, you can have an account with the government wallet and you know trade that Bitcoin. Of course, it has to be fully KYC'd and we'll tax you in every transaction. That's a thing that could happen tomorrow. There's no technical barrier to that happening. It's just that right now, withdrawing from Coinbase is a privilege. It's not a right. There's no way to force Coinbase to give you your Bitcoin back if you have an account with them. So I don't really see a recursive covenant as changing the game too much because the real issue is right. that Coinbase. Well, holds I hear your argument Bitcoin. is you're, you're saying what you're saying is the potential downside is a what if scenario and the obvious benefits are very easy to materialize and would add really good functionality. Right. Because I don't see the real issue of Bitcoin being the government regulators start using really clever cryptography to restrict how you can use it. The issue I see is that fundamentally blockchains don't scale. And so you need kind of novel layer two technologies to enable it to be useful. Like the trustlessness and the uncensorability is really useful for Bitcoin. But at a certain price, it's so expensive that that's only useful for very big, rich transactions. If you want Bitcoin to be useful for smaller transactions, for private transactions, we need new technologies. And it seems pretty clear that at least Barack can build a very cool technology using a covenant. Yeah. Something like ARC would make it seem just obviously worth it because, you know, the privacy benefits there would outweigh the what if scenario concerns that I have. I don't know. Maybe those things will never materialize. Maybe at some point, you know, Wall Street will just want in on this sweet action and they won't want to mess with it too much because if you do, it doesn't make it that sweet action. Well, exactly. As the institutions on board to Bitcoin, there is the potential for them to become Bitcoin advocates to a certain extent. Yeah. And once you become a big bag holder, you don't want to screw it up. I mean, they, of course, there will be bureaucrats and politicians who are idiots and still attempt, but there is a certain incentive that kicks in if you become a large enough bag holder, I would think. You know, in, you know, if governments own hundreds or thousands of Bitcoin, they maybe would not be as inclined to go muck around with it via regulation. So it looks like there are many avenues for covenants to happen on Bitcoin. And I'm going to make a prediction that the next soft fork will be covenant related. Ooh, I like it. You want to put a timeline on 
on that? Because that's pretty tricky. I'd only put a timeline if we were betting. And I don't know if we should encourage speculation because this is the Bitcoin dad pod. Yeah, yeah. No, dads never bet kids. Never. Although I do think there's probably a couple of like sat apps that we could set up on like an umbral node to do like little sat bets. Oh, those um, crystal bowl or something. Yeah, something like that. Not that we would ever do that. But, you know, it might make it a little more interesting if we had a little action on the side. <laughs> Degen Dad Pod. That's our new working title. When we uh, when we finally give up on trying to get enough revenue and boosts, we'll, we'll launch a membership feed, and that'll be the Degen Dad Show. Degen Dad Den. Degen Dad Den. That sounds like a lawsuit waiting to happen. <laughs> no children are allowed in the Degen Dad Den. <laughs> you know it's a high quality show because we'll start every show within the first 30 seconds we'll mention how it's not financial advice that's how you know it's high quality i'm sure that not financial advice is going to save you in court guys you're good yeah it's like when you say no copyright intended right and then you display disney art remember you can get in touch with the show at bitcoin dad pod at protonmail.com or there is the twitter platform at bitcoin dad pod i don't know but really the action the day-to-day nuance that's all in the matrix channel Grab a client like Element. I don't know, maybe Fluffy Chat. I don't know how you do. And then uh, you can get details at jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix because uh, my podcast network hosts that. And you can get in there and dad and I are in there from time to time. And there's a good community, often some robust, but yet respectful debate as well. And there's also a beginner's like questions and answers channel as well. Jupiterbroadcasting.com slash matrix for that action. And our first boost comes in from True Grits, who sent in a series of 5,000 sat boosts. The first one for episode 69, Steady Lads Deploying More Capital. This episode makes me feel really great. Uh, I think there's a sarcastic tone to that statement. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I have purchased essentially all of my Bitcoin through Cash App. I really like their card because I can round up to the nearest dollar on purchases into Bitcoin and have it auto buy 10% of the deposits in Bitcoin. Now I don't use this as my main card and only add money to it as needed. But this takedown of them really makes me second guess using them. I guess there was that um, Hindenburg research report about Cash App. You know, I don't think it really affects users so much. It's just kind of the allegation that Cash App was sort of massaging their numbers to make them look more attractive to investors. Which literally all startups, 100% of them with VC investors do. Growth hacking, (laughs) baby. Growth hacking. Yeah. Uh, You know, I want to defend the Cash App. I, I actually think it's a great app. And I think if we besmirch every newbie app out there, we're never going to have anything we recommend to newbies. And if you're in the States, at least, the Cash App is so damn simple. Dealing with Bitcoin is as easy as dealing with cash. And True Grits is right. You can get a debit card for free. And it is so simple to put cash on that debit card and then have it round up in Bitcoin. And one of the things I have experimented with in a brief test is because the Cash App supports the Lightning Network, I sent some sats from my node to the Cash App. That took about 15 seconds using the Zeus app. So I launched the Zeus app. I send the sats to Cash App, open up Cash App. I have the sats. In another three seconds, I have sold the sats. And now they're on my debit card. And I walk in and I bought some tacos. All while I was kind of just coming into the restaurant. Sats to tacos. It's really not a bad app to be able to just quickly onboard. Yes, it's KYC'd, but in my opinion, if you're grabbing some sats to boost, you're grabbing some sats for a transaction, you're not really like saving your sats. They're not your savings account sats or whatever, then well, I'm a little I'm a little more carefree and I'll, I'll use Strike or Cash App. Like on this trip to El Salvador, I'm probably gonna use the Strike app quite a bit. Uh, because I'm I'm not trying to stack those sats uh, for you know 30 years. <laughs> I'm I'm using them for 30 seconds. Also, I want to mention True Grits 
is uh, basically one of the baller boosters of this show. Uh, he he was on a road trip. He as he's about to say because he sent another five thousand sets. I'm on a road trip to Sp- from Spokane, Washington to Missoula, Montana, streaming and boosting on the way. And he sure did five thousand sets along the way. Thank you, True Grits. He came in with one last boost where he said, uh, "Love this episode on episode seventy three. And I have taken that road trip, but I went all the way to I think Crested or Butte, Butte, um, Montana. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And Missoula is a beautiful college town. I had some huckleberry ice cream there. And Butte is definitely a place to visit if you want to see a bit of American history, because Butte, Montana, that's actually where basically all the copper that powered the American Industrial Revolution came from. And the Butte Copper Barons, they made Jeff Bezos look like a pauper. They were so rich compared to the average person back then that um, there really was an era of American oligarchy before the present day. And you can actually tour the, I think it's called the um, Lonely Sister, the Orphan Girl Mine. I think the the Orphan Girl Mine in Butte, Montana. You can go down in there and it is super cool going into a copper mine. Yeah, I've been in a similar mine. Yeah, there's a couple along that road trip that you can stop at. One that's even at like an RV campground. So you can park your RV and then take your kids into the mine. (laughs) Oh yeah, we went into a gold mine too. That was was pretty fun. And we even got to do a little bit of um, double jacking, which is uh, quite scary when you're doing it by candlelight because you have to basically swing at your friend's finger to find the double jack in the darkness. So there's a potential to smash someone's thumb with a hammer. And if you do that, wow. then they get to try next time. So it can turn into a, a, a thumb smashing hmm. game. That's also just a view, very, very, very beautiful stretch from Spokane to about Bozeman is some of the prettiest of the country. Montana, I don't think it's enough credit for how beautiful the western part is. Perhaps because the eastern part. Sorry, guys. Not so much. The Golden Dragon boosts in a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. Greatly appreciate the pod. Don't know why I don't listen more. Oh, my gosh. Golden Dragon. Uh, you know, sorry. Um, Being newer to BTC, I don't know some terms like VTXO or UTXO, but always great info. So VTXO is a term specific to R. It means virtual transaction output. And UTXO means unspent transaction output. And Bitcoin is a UTXO-based model for how we handle Bitcoins. And the idea is just that Bitcoins are like actual coins. They're distinct chunks of data like digital coins on a blockchain. And the difference between a Bitcoin and a physical coin is that a UTXO can be any value, but with physical coins, they have to have sort of distinct values because we make them in batches. But with Bitcoins, because we forge them in every transaction, a UTXO can be any size. So it can be one Satoshi or it can be 100,000 Bitcoin. You know, episode three, we talk about self-custody and I think you did a couple of term breakdowns in, in that early episode, in episode three. So that's something to look at. Some of those early episodes, we did do some term breakdowns. Um, but uh, yeah, totally. Thanks for thanks for joining us on the adventure, Golden Dragon. I think you'll pick a few things up real quick. Golden Dragon continues with another row of ducks. New advancements in Bitcoin. Even the ideas are just fascinating. Thanks, Dad. And thanks, Barack. Well, Barack, I hope you're listening because we really appreciate you coming on and explaining terms for us. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was really helpful. Uh, we got an Oak Node user. That's the automatic sap blaster. 3,000 sats on a reoccurring tip. Bob's one of these. I know we had two Oak users come in. Uh, he says, I'm guessing the whole Oak notion needs a little more polish. I was watching Oak 
and on the blockchain hit uh he's well he saw it hit the blockchain and saw chris transfers make it but yours failed not sure why but the error code looked like it was on my side so i'm sending the stats manually interesting boy you're really bob you're really putting a lot a lot of effort into this you are a man on the ground on this for sure bob really has some follow-through because for me like if i set up a system and then it fails I'm not necessarily going to do it manually. I'm probably going to be a little disappointed or something. He's doing such a more thorough job than I would have. It's fantastic. Hal was right. Boosts in 2,100 sats. I've traveled to El Salvador through Miami a couple of times, and nobody seems to care about phones at all. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely we're putting our tinfoil hats on when we care about phones at the border. But it is it is a risk. Perhaps I'm a nobody who doesn't have a Bitcoin talk show, though. Oh, well, you're not nobody, but I don't know if you have a Bitcoin talk show. As a precaution, I turn my phone off when I go through security just in case they try to mess with it. I use a strong password instead of a pin or pattern on my Graphene OS phone. I also use full disk encryption on my laptop. Nice. Full disk encryption is the way to go. Whoop, whoop. Thank you, Hal. Uh, I, if anybody else has any travel experience and bringing their phone with Bitcoin on it, uh, I'd love to have that input. We have a few months to figure it out, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what to do. But Hal, you did give me some peace of mind. Limiting factor comes in with 3,000 sets. Are you running your audio through a silence trimmer? The voice seems condensed. This is my first, or my first boost aired out, so this is my second attempt. So he, he I, I just gave him the full 3,000 set. Uh, so new gear. New gear, Dad. You want to tell everybody about the new gear? Yes. So limiting factor is is correct. I actually do run our audio through a silence trimmer, and that is my preference because I speak quite slowly and there are often long gaps in my speech. So if I didn't do that, I think you might find it hard to listen to my recorded voice. I also don't like podcasts that move too slowly. So these are just my preferences and I've been trying to refine that process to make it seem less stilted. So I I hope that doesn't bother you. I've also been experimenting with a new soundboard. So the last three episodes, you might think the my sound is kind of bad or a little thin or something. Well, I've been working on that. So it's a work in progress and with life and a baby. Unfortunately, we're experimenting in production. Yep. You learn by doing on a podcast that you do every week when you have life. Definitely know that one. Man, my early audio is so bad. You know, you learn a lot quicker than I was. So... So that's good. And it's great that you're investing in the show, right? Getting gear, trying to learn new ways of doing the production. This hardware that you have will make it even more robust if you go on location and do an interview. You know, as far as the silence trimming, that's uh, always a preference thing. There may be a middle ground. You know, maybe it's there's some room in there to add a little bit more silence. But everybody has their own preference because, you know, some people, they like to listen at like 1.5, 1.8, 2x. Some people don't. So it's 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 probably, you know, never going to make everybody happy kind of thing. Right. MCOT comes in with one, two, four, four sets. Pew, pew. Love the pod. Keep up the great work, guys. For those with KYC stacks, consider providing liquidity to P2P markets like RoboSats. This converts the KYC Bitcoin to non-KYC for someone else and gives the seller a dirty fiat to trade back into Bitcoin in a more private way. That's certainly an idea to keep in mind. That's interesting. I, I will look into that. But it means that you're taking KYC Bitcoin, 
selling it on RoboSats and then rebuying non-KYC Bitcoin on RoboSats. So there's a bit of circularity there, but you you might get some privacy for sure. Jordan Bravo boosts in 11,111 sats, a bushel of sticks. First time booster, love the show. A couple of points reacquiring non-KYC Bitcoins. You mentioned RoboSats, BISC, and HODL HODL. Agora Desk is another option. Both Bitcoin and Monero are available to trade. Even hardcore BTC maxis can agree. The more non-KYC options we have, the better. Also, anyone can use HODL HODL by using a VPN to make their location appear to be outside the US, e.g. in Canada. That is true. The issue is you need to have a bank account or some payment method. So I believe that you might have trouble doing international HODL HODL if you're using US payment methods, but I, I can't confirm. I don't think I'm necessarily opposed to it for if you have a way to get the money in and out for those kind of like smash buys when the market's doing something. You're like, oh, I'm going to go in. I've been saving my money. I'm going to go in. Um, but I don't know if I'd habitualize HODL HODL using it in a way that is probably technically against the terms of service because inevitably those things can change. You know, years, but some one day they may not, it may no longer work. And if you're trying to build like some sort of DCA routine around it, it may be not the best long-term bet, but it may work for a while and it may work great for a certain smash buy or sells. I get the sense that Jordan is uh, a power user because we're talking about Monero, Bitcoin, and using VPNs to sort of get around geofencing. So if you're a power user, this might be something to try. Go for it. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. This is a value for value production. This is how we try to monetize the time spent on the show and the investment in the gear. If you'd like to boost in, you have two paths ahead of you. You can get a new podcast app, newpodcastapps.com, and try out a podcasting 2.0 app like Fountain, which streams sats to you as you listen. Podverse, which is GPL and available for all the platforms. Or something like Castomatic, which is custom built for iOS. Or keep your dang current podcast app. We don't care. Just get Albi. Get Albi.com. Top that off either directly using MoonPay or over the Lightning Network. Lots of ways to do that. And then head over to the Podcast Index once you have Albi installed. Podcastindex.org. Look for the Bitcoin Dad Pod. We'll put a link in the show notes. And then you can just boost from the web. Get your message into the show. Send a little bit of value back to the program if you got some value out of listening. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on June 9th, 2023. I've been your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here remotely as always with... It's me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.